Uh, I'm going to talk about mortality with this title, Who Wants to Live Forever? David has already said, it depends. Um, and the prospect of supercentenarians. And, and I'm sure we're all aware because we almost can't pick up a newspaper uh, nowadays without reading that we're actually all living too long uh, and that this is going to be a huge problem for us uh, in the future, not just as society but as, but as individuals. Uh, the maths don't add up in terms of how much we work and how much we uh, spend, how much time we spend in retirement. I worked, uh, uh, 30 years ago I was working in Denmark at the University of Copenhagen and at that time the Danish government um, set up a, a government commission on ageing, uh, the first country in the world to do so, to, 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 look, to look at the implications of its ageing population to develop what I think we today would call a joined up policy to address all of these issues that would come out of uh, this ageing population. And uh, uh, I was asked to, to, to help this commission and went along to my, my first meeting there uh, with the commission and walked in. And the first question they put to me was, George, where have all these older people come from? <laughs> um, which, on the one hand, may sound silly, but on the other hand, uh, was actually quite a sensible question because it was something that hadn't really been picked up on because things were happening so slowly in terms of decreasing mortality uh, among middle-aged and, 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 and older people in particular. And, and, and in Denmark, for many years, the official population forecasts had assumed that mortality over 60 would always be constant, that it would never decline. Well, uh, we've seen that that hasn't been the case. It's a question of whether it's going to continue declining and whether we are all going to continue living longer and, and, and not dying on time. <laughs> so what, what, is, what, is, what has been happening and what is it that we seem to get wrong so often uh, with predictions about how long we're, we're, we're going to live? Um, I suppose I can say demographers are not very good at predicting the future. Um, I usually put demographers and economists together, um, and, and I think perhaps uh, weather forecasters as well. We're very good at, 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 at explaining what has happened, uh, but maybe not what will happen. Uh, and, and this trend that we can see here for the UK, this is expectation of life uh, uh, at birth in the 20th century. Um, it, it, is, it, is, it has been fooling us year on year that we've always been saying, well, yes, it is increasing, but it's not going to continue. It will begin to, to flatten out. There is, there is a limit to this. Um, but as you can see, we don't seem to have reached that, that limit yet. And the question for the future, of course, is, is there a limit? Will we reach it? Or perhaps those limits can actually be moved. Sarah talked about uh, technology in the way of communication, but there is also medical technologies uh, 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 that, 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 that have a great role to play here, and I'll, I will touch upon that just very briefly later. <coughs> I have to put my glasses on because I can't see what it says here. Um, <laughs> that's better. Ah, oh, gosh, no. Oh, this is a different presentation from the one I thought I was given. No, okay, don't worry. Um, 
No. Um, this one is a little bit of history, but it's much more the future. So, so what we have across here is uh, uh, the, the, the year, the calendar year, right up to the middle of, uh, of this century and going back to about 1980. And, and this is, as you can see, cohort life expectancy at birth um, based on some uh, uh, UK projections. So it's slightly different from the one we were looking at before, which was, which was cross-sectional data. This is cohort. So part of the cohort experience is... Cohort, this is... Uh, a cohort is a group of people, in this case, who were all born at the same time. Yeah. And... Uh, I think, I think it was a group of Roman soldiers originally, if I remember, if I remember my school Latin. Um, but this is a group of people who were born at the same time. So we're following that cohort. And of course, some of the experience is what they actually experienced. Some of it is predicted, of course, for the future. And it's that prediction which is based on the, the projections from the, from the ONS here uh, in the UK. And, and we can see here, we've got both for males and for females. Females slightly higher than the males. And for each of those two, there are two lines. Unfortunately, the top one, the light blue, is almost uh, invisible. Uh, but below the, the light purple line, there is a light blue line. Um, and <coughs> yeah, this should be 2006 females down here. It says 2008. It should say 2006. Sorry for the light blue. So what, we, what I'm trying to show here is that in the course of two years between 2006 and 2008 projections, uh, things changed. So that even with such a short time span, those, those projections of how long we expect these cohorts to live have changed. <coughs> Uh, and, and in fact, the ONS is almost revising its figures annually now because things are, are changing so, so rapidly. And, and, and I think I'm right in saying that uh, during the hour and a quarter that you'll be listening to us here, your life expectancy is going to increase, I think, by about 15, 20 minutes. Um, <laughs> so if you find it boring, then that might be some, uh, uh, some consolation for you. But basically, we, we've not been good at getting this right. That was life expectancy at birth. Here we have uh, a life expectancy at age 65, again going into the middle of, the, of this century. And we can see how that has been increasing dramatically too. So just 30 years ago, a 65-year-old in the UK, a, ma a male just had slightly less than 15 years uh, life expectancy. This is on, on average for the whole group, of course. Uh, and women, uh, 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 almost 20 years. But today, 2011, you can see that the man is over 20 and the woman is almost 25. And in just f over 40, almost 50 years' time, then men will have gone above 25 years' life expectancy at 65, and women will be coming up to 30. So these trends just seem to go on and on and on. And we can try to look at what has been, uh, what has been behind uh, this trend. Can I just have some water, please? Um, I'm just looking at a, a, a couple of... Um, thank you. I'm going to get lots of water now. And... <laughs> 
That's okay. No Thank you. I'm just looking at, at this is um, uh, the speed of reduction in total mortality, and then I'll look at some causes of death. Just to show how the, 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 the pace of change has been increasing uh, over the last hundred years or so. So, this again is for males aged just 65 to 74. We're just looking at that group, okay? The first 20% decline in mortality in that group, as you can see, took 68 years. The next 20% decline took only 17 years. The next 10 years, oh, I got two in there, uh, and the next two lots of 20% decline took six years. So it does seem to be levelling off at around six years now. Maybe that's the, the maximum, if you like, pace that we can, we can expect. But that is a very dramatic decline in mortality for a group which, remember, uh, just 30 years or so ago, we were saying, oh, their mortality is not going to change. It'll be constant. Just a little uh, curiosum here is that if we were, just to show the impact that some of our uh, diseases have on our life expectancies, um, as colleague Jay Oshansky, in, in, uh, I think he's at the University of Illinois or Chicago, uh, Illinois, um, if we were able to uh, eliminate all forms of cancer, cardiovascular disease and diabetes as causes of death, that would add about 12 years to current life expectancy in the USA. Doesn't mean we'd live forever, we have to die at some point, but it does mean we would add a lot more years to those years that we were looking at in the graphs just before. And of course, there are certain uh, diseases which hit us in, in middle age and in, in, in later life. Uh, uh, but we've experienced quite dramatic declines in those, as we can see here. This is heart disease. Quite a dramatic decline at the end of the 20th century, to the extent that, in fact, premature death from heart disease in England could almost be unheard of within a decade. Cancer and stroke deaths, similar sorts of declines. So the future does look very rosy in terms of life expectancies. And of course, one could talk about whether that is going to be healthy life expectancy, and there are perhaps different meaning, uh, different uh, ideas, opinions on that. Um, but it doesn't seem to... Uh, life expectancy, increasing life expectancy at least doesn't seem to be adding increased numbers of years in unhealthy life expectancy. It's a question of whether we were able to compress that morbidity, as it's called, towards the end of our lives. But let me move on to radical, radical longevity, radical life ex extension. Well, now, one could say that what we've seen thus far is quite radical. Um, but a lot of that um, is happening within what we see as a limit to our biological lifespan. And so that, yes, we're extending our life expectancies, but it's within a finite limit. 
and, and that ultimately the best we can achieve is that we all live to be 115 and then we all die on our 115th birthday. A complete rectangularization of our survival. But of course, one has to, in a way, think outside that box, perhaps, if we're going to be able to extend our lives radically. Think outside that box to the extent that not only will our life expectancy increase, but our potential length of life will also increase. There's nothing new about that, and, 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 and researchers in this field have been uh, researching this and making statements about this for quite some time now. And I've just got uh, four here, one of which is myself, and mine's a much more modest um, uh, statement than some of the others. But, but we, we can go back to the mid-1990s. The possibilities of lengthening life appear practically unlimited. At the same time, the only practical limit to human lifespan is the limit of human technology. So when bits break down, we replace them. All bits. And then a, a, a colleague, Aubrey de Grey, the third one. Um, the cure for ageing is no longer science fiction. Aubrey, uh, I think perhaps what we would say positively about Aubrey de Grey is that he makes us think outside the box. And this is very much a statement which makes us think outside that box. The interesting uh, word there is cure. The cure for ageing is no longer science fiction. And once we've regarded ageing as something that can be cured, we're, we're putting it on a par with a disease and therefore we will find cures. And Aubrey is, is, is firmly in that camp and believes that, uh, yes, we could all potentially be immortal. But one thing uh, that I've said and, and written about to some, is that the 21st century will be the century of centenarians, maybe even the super centenarians. And that's just what I want to finish on now in the last couple of minutes that I have. And just some data here from around the world, a couple of countries, but in the world today, uh, about 292,000 centenarians with a big thick line under about 292,000 centenarians. That's expected to increase more than tenfold by the middle of the century. And it's happening both in the more developed and in the less developed world. And actually much more dramatically in the less developed world if we look at those figures there. Japan, one of the longest lived countries in the world is going to see very dramatic explosion in, in its uh, uh, centenarian population. China likewise, and even in the UK where at the moment a modest 11,000 thereabouts um, centenarians expected to reach maybe about 100,000 by the middle of the century. I've said it's the century of centenarians, yes, but not quite, because if we, if we go to somewhere unfortunate on the planet, like uh, Sierra Leone, then I'm afraid there aren't any centenarians there, uh, and there aren't likely to be any. Um, and in fact, if we look at the UN population predictions, uh, the, f the first few centenarians in Sierra Leone begin to arrive on the scene very much at the beginning of the 22nd century. This is fine. I've got two more slides, so I hope that's okay. Um, 
this is the verified highest age of death in England and Wales. Verified because, of course, there is always some uh, question around the, uh, the validity of some of these longest-lived people's uh, dates of birth. Um, but the UK, England and Wales has been part of a, uh, a, a, of a big international project trying to look at only verified uh, highest ages of death. And these are the ones which are verified by the ONS. And we can see that over the period from 1968 until the end of the 20th century, it was pretty much around 110, 115 years of age, the oldest person dying in this country. That's not the oldest person in the world. That's in the early 120s that we've experienced, that was ver verifiable. But if we look to the, to the future... Yes, those highest ages were 111 to 115. But if we look at <laughs> official projections and official expectations with regard to mortality development in the future, and they could possibly be put on the conservative side, then those highest ages by the 2080s, seems a long way away, will be 116 to 123 years. And the interesting point is... By that time, it will be the 1966 generation, which is dying, if not all of them, of course, but that, that are going to be having those very high ages at death for a large proportion of them. And therefore, that explosion that we saw, explosion's not a good word, I'm sorry, that dramatic increase in the number of centenarians in, in, the, U, in the UK. I'm not a demographer, and uh, in this presentation there are no figures, I'm afraid. Uh, I can, I'll try to address some of the issues we will be touching on from a slightly different angle. Uh, in particular, I'll try to look at the issue of migration. Um, as Sarah was mentioning before, very often migration or immigration is seen as a solution to the demographic deficit for the liberal states. And... Uh, this has been very much a contested uh, solution and it's still uh, not clear if it is or if it's not. Mostly because there are, it's very difficult to see the interest of the liberal state as a homogeneous interest. There are uh, clients' politics, there are different interest groups, so it's much more complex than that, we could say. But my research focuses mainly on uh, what we can call very marginal uh, groups, I do research with uh, Roma gypsies, um, with illegal migrants, um, with stateless people, with asylum seekers. So I have uh, my entry point into the issue of migration is a specific entry point. Um, so what I try to look at the presentation is uh, how the liberal states deal with unwanted immigrants. Those and unwanted can be defined in various ways, as I'll try to explain later. Um, so the key question, I think, we should, the starting point is, um, as most of, may, most of you may have heard, uh, states, liberal states, try to manage migration. So the idea is that the states can regulate uh, do, those group of population that comes in or go out of the country. And uh, that this is a feasible political objective. Um, a lot of commentators that think that this is actually an unrealistic um, target for uh, policymakers, and they've tried to explain why. 
Um, what is it? So if you think, for example, at uh, the tools that have been developed in the UK recently, recently uh, that replicate what's happening already in Australia, the use of the point tire system, the fact that basically people get points according to how beneficial they are to the country where they try to move, is a very interesting aspect because it seems like to treat human beings as um, goods that they can be sort of picked from the shelves and put moved in and out of, of uh, a place. But unfortunately, it's more complex than that, as most of social researchers always say. It's always more complex than that. Um, there are two kinds of questions that we can try to formulate, and they have been put forward by Freeman and uh, Jopke in particular. Can liberal state control unwanted migration? And in a slightly different emphasis, why liberal state accept unwanted uh, migration? Um, for Freeman, states have a considerable capacity to regulate migration, who comes in in the country in particular, more than who leaves the country. However, there's a difference between different states and you have to identify different domains for uh, this ability to control. In particular, it looks into four categories, legal, illegal, asylum, and temporary migration. Um, and he's also pointing out the fact that over time, this capacity may change. So states that at some point may be more able to control migration may lose this capacity. Uh, recent development, for example, in, uh, in the EU, seems to show how it's possible to have a better control of the the board, the external borders of the EU, for example, through the use of technologies. However, if you look at the data on irregular migration, illegal migrants, you find out that most of the illegal migrants in Europe uh, didn't come in, the in, in Europe illegally, but they were basically overstaying their visa. So in a way, they escaped the control at border because they were illegal migrants at some point in their life. For job case that, the fact that liberal states self-regulate their, their power so is one of the reasons why uh, they can control migration, but they're not up to a point, and this lets some unwanted migrants in. But also the fact that Jobke is a point I mentioned at the beginning, that there are different interest groups in, uh, in the countries that may have interest or, uh, in having illegal migrants. For example, there's been plenty of research showing how um, the migrants worker without legal documents are much more exploitable in the job markets. And so there is an interest in keeping them like that. So you have to relate the legal status issue also to um, the condition of the, the job market very clearly. And also there is an element of uh, moral, we could say moral obligation towards um, groups that historically have suffered, for example, exclusion or um, as in the case, for example, of the gypsies who were prosecuted, persecuted during the, um, the, Nazi fashion and, uh, the Nazis period and they end up dying in the uh, up to 500,000 Roma were killed uh, in the gypsy holocaust or always called Poraimus. Uh, or groups like towards which the country has some kind of obligation, for example, uh, migrants that come from former colonies, as is the case, for example, of the uh, Caribbean migration in the UK in the 1950s. So, um, so there is a moral obligation there, but not all countries have got the same kind of moral obligation. 
Um, however, still here, in this kind of explanation of if it's possible not to control unwanted migration, the main focus is on the state. Uh, more recent work instead tend to uh, make it the things even more difficult and emphasize the fact that international migration, the mobility of people in the, uh, globally, um, cannot be regulated, regulated successfully by immigration policy simply because immigration policy cannot control all the factors determining international migration. This is why in the title of this slide I took an emphasis on immigration. Because immigration policies are those ones that target specifically the people that come in the country. But of course international migration is something much larger than what the people that come to the UK specifically. Um, and there are a number of factors why immigration policy tends to fail. This is in particular Stephen Custer, the former director of the Refugee Studies Centre, who uh, tried to explain why immigration policy fails. Uh, and there are factors which can be linked to various aspects. First of all, there are factors which are more strictly related to migration itself. The fact that uh, um, uh, the decision to migrate is related not only to the choice of individual, but to of the choice of families, of household, of villages. Uh, the fact that the migration of few people can generate chains of migration. <coughs> this is why, for example, it happens that in a city like Nottingham, you may have uh, people coming from Poland from a specific town or an area, and not generally from the old country. Or why, for example, the Roma of Targumures lives all in Rome. Uh, there is histories of migration which goes beyond the decision of the individual migrants itself. And also culture of migration, in a way, that uh, migration has become part of the process of um, almost a, a rite of passage for, for youth. And this is the case, for example, of Kurdish migrants in Turkey. Uh, uh, that some of them are persecutors, others see the migration as part of their experience of growing up. So it's a, it becomes a cultural element um, as well. But there are also factors which are related, of course, to the north-south divide, uh, the structural dependency of some country from the remittances that comes in from, from abroad, as well as the dependency of some job market in the li liberal state from the work of uh, uh, the cheap work of uh, um, low-skilled migrants, of high-skilled migrants employed in low-skilled jobs. Uh, they normally do a very good job, and we don't pay them much. Um, and finally, there is also the element of uh, the fact that migration policy cannot really control the causes of migration. If there is a, um, a revolution in Libya, and this may push out a lot of people, how can the immigration policy of the England, based on the concept of non-migration, do something about that? So in a sense, the causes of migration are not related to what, uh, the way that we try to address them. Of course, it's more complex because then we got also the foreign uh, ministry intervening in this issue, and David Cameron visiting Tripoli uh, as well. Uh, <laughs> um, so now what I would like to just do very quickly is to try to give you um, three examples of uh, what we can call unwanted migration. By unwanted migration, of course, what is unwanted is uh, historically constructed. There are some group of people that at some point in history were unwanted. There is a famous book about Italian uh, emigration to the US that uh, is titled Are Italian Black? And, uh, and by using the color code, they were also indicating some kind of a negative uh, attitude to this group of population. So we also have to understand this unwanted is in inverted commas because it's uh, something that is negotiated over time. And there are reasons why in some countries, some groups are unwanted and not in other places. 
Um, so the three categories that I sort of, um, I, I cherry pick myself, uh, although in a different way. One is the so-called bogus asylum seekers. It's an expression very common in the, in the media, at least in UK and partially in, in, in Europe. Um, the fact that those who claim asylum don't really have genuine reason for uh, claiming asylum and they are also try to get advantages of our welfare state system. Um, nowadays, the number of asylum seekers in UK and Europe has, is actually decreased significant, significantly if you compare to uh, the early 2000s and late 1990s. At that point, the use of the, the term bogus asylum seekers was at the center of uh, both the media and political agenda. And the idea was that we had to reduce the number of people who were applying for asylum in this country. Uh, they succeeded. So in a sense, the policy of the UK government was successful in um, reducing the number of people who were coming. So you can say, yes, it was successful. However, you have to look also the other side of it. Um, and you have to look, for example, at the fact that the number of people claiming asylum outside the UK or outside the EU has increased significantly. <laughs> the fact that, for example, the EU has started to sponsor a center for the assessment of asylum claims at the border of Europe or has tried to keep the people who were seeking protection near the area of uh, conflict is part of that. So in a sense, you can see how, yes, maybe the number of people in the country is reduced, but this doesn't mean that the people that need protection has been, is reduced. And also it's interesting because if you look from the perspective of the UN higher commissioner for refugees, the number of uh, refugees and people of concern, which is a strange expression that they use in the UN, the UNCR to mean all the other people that they deal with, which include nowadays also those escaping, for example, environmental disasters, uh, uh, is increasing, has increased from something around 10 million to up to 45 million. So you can see the people in it has increased significantly, but some of them don't manage to reach the country. This doesn't mean that the UK doesn't have policy towards this group of people. Actually, through this policy, they manage to keep them outside. Um, another group of people which is seen as unwanted is um, the Roma. Uh, um, and uh, very often, they are, their migration, their mobility is identified through definition like a tidal wave, an invasion of the Roma arriving in the UK, in Italy, in France. And the case of Italy and France in the last two, three years have been sort of uh, um, central in the, in, the, in the political and the media debate in all around Europe and also in the, uh, more generally. Um, it's interesting because the, the, the invasion of the Roma is strictly related somehow to the process of EU enlargement. Before the enlargement of the EU, the Roma were outside the border of the European Union and their mobility was controlled um, through the migration law uh, in general. What happened since the enlargement in 2004 and 2007 is the, that this was no, more, no longer possible. And because the EU was founded on the principle of freedom of movement, then these people were migrants, they turned into minorities, and they turn into European citizens. So in, th in theory, they should be allowed to move around uh, freely and to settle in each European country. However, the country tried to find other solutions. And, um, and uh, for example, Italy and France started campaigns of deportation of them back to Romania mainly. Uh, and, uh, however, this deportation is interesting because everyone has been condemning in, uh, among the human rights activists all over the world uh, the fact that France is deporting Roma. What is not very much discussed is the fact that those deported very often can easily come back to, to France, sometimes even in two, three days. 
Uh, and the use of deportation as tool for regulating migration operates much more on the symbolic level of politi or political level because, for example, Sarkozy has got targets of deportation. He says, every year I want to deport 200,000 people. The Roma are very easy to identify, very easy to send back. They can come back. I can send them back again. Count twice <laughs> in the statistics. Um, another group which is problematic and is interesting is the so called illegal migrants. One thing that is very common to hear nowadays is the fact that illegal migration is increasing. I mean, of course, because it's illegal migration, it's very hard to have any baseline, uh, any, any data about how many people are we talking about. You can look at this though you can look at this from a different angle. Illegal migration is increasing because the routes to legal entry in Europe and the UK are almost disappearing. A lot of the illegal migrants that are now in the UK are asylum seekers who are not allowed to, ap to apply for asylum. I mean, my work clearly also showed the fact that uh, among, there are a lot of Afghani young people that arrive from Kabul to the UK and they prefer not to apply for asylum because they know that if they apply, they are sent back directly to Kabul, which is considered a safe place and they prefer rather to live in the underground. And this is happening in France, in Italy, uh, in Spain. So the idea that even when you look at the illegal migrants, uh, the unwanted illegal migrants, well, there are, these are not people, it's, it seems like there are, the mobility of the people is there, and the label, use the bureaucratic label to govern them, have shifted. The final, uh, my final point, it's, um, it's about, um, I don't know how many of you are from the UK, but a couple of weeks ago, there was a very significant discussion around um, the failure of the current government to achieve its target of uh, reducing net migration to uh, the tens of thousands. Okay. Net by net migration, we need the difference between those in-migrants and the out-migrants. So basically, is, what is interesting is that, and the question is provocative, is uh, who is a net migrant? It's almost a kind of a new creation uh, genetic uh, of, the, of the government policy, genetic, uh, genetic human being. Um, what is interesting in this uh, definition, and it's again, and I conclude on the point of why my immigration policy fails. Sometimes in this case, it's because they choose the wrong, clearly the wrong uh, targets. Uh, the point is that an uh, immigration policy cannot be um, based on net migration because it cannot control the large majority of the factor which determine, which determine net migration. It cannot control the people who leave the country, the emigrant. It cannot control the EU citizen who move in and out of the country. It cannot control the UK citizen who come back to the UK or they decide to leave the UK. So one of the big problems of the government at the moment was to have chosen the wrong indicator. And now they've got a problem to stick to it, I'm afraid for them. <laughs> and, uh, okay, thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you, you've heard um, three uh, brilliant talks, uh, one from Mrs. Birth, one from Mr. Death, and one from Mr. Migration. Uh, those are the three chief factors of population change, which leaves me only with a, a few crumbs, which is just as well because I've only got a, a few crumbs of time as well if we're going to have any kind of discussion um, after I finish speaking. Well, uh, um, this may probably... Yes. Probably as you're here, there's no need for me to dilate on this particular slide because uh, if you're here, you must be interested in population, whether or not you, you, you agree that population is a problem. Certainly, it's a matter of a, a great interest, and I think um, pressing interest. Uh, these are some of the reasons why, why population excites people's attention, uh, some to do with problems of resources and sustainability, um, the question of uh, Yemen becoming perhaps the first country in the world to run out of, out of water, the possibility with uh, um, alarming 
recent increases in food prices caused by many processes, many of them to do with the market, nonetheless um, uh, suggesting rather more strongly than before that uh, Maltus's vultures might eventually be coming home to roost in, in certain parts of the world uh, and the other issues which I've listed here, which I won't dilate on uh, any further. Um, I'm going to talk mostly about the future of population, and, and you may think, well, um, how does he know what the future is going to be? And of course, I don't know, um, and you know perfectly well that all population projections are always wrong. Um, uh, I rescue myself from that statement by saying that it depends um, uh, how wrong, uh, and uh, all that matters is that they are, they are approximately right, uh, and in that respect, as I'll show in, in a moment, I hope, uh, demographers have something which helps them, which is denied to economists. Um, and I think there are, there are five things, at least, on which I would put a lot of money. Uh, uh, one is going to be, as Sarah pointed out right at the beginning, a world population increase of at least about three billion people, bar some unpleasant asteroid collision. Um, that uh, almost all that increase is going to be in the so-called third world countries. Almost all that's going to be in cities uh, is going to be the century of urbanization. Uh, urbanization passed 50% of the world's population uh, a while ago, and, and almost all additional population is going to be in urban areas, some of them of enormous size. Um, all birth rates, as Sarah also was saying, uh, will stay low or decline, um, and as a consequence, all populations, almost all populations, are getting older, and that's something about which we can do rather little. Um, it is important, I think, to, to um, not to imagine that we're swapping one problem for another. The papers, the journalists seem to assume you can only have one population problem at once. Well, I think the bad news is you can have several population problems all at once, uh, and we've certainly got one at the moment. Continued uh, rapid decline, I won't use the, the word uh, explosion uh, in, um, in the poorest countries, while rapid aging, and in some cases, population uh, 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 decline in, in the richer ones. So two contrasting processes, enormous increases in, in West Africa, still in parts of Asia, combined with uh, stagnation and decline of numbers elsewhere. Some of which you may think is a, is a, is a good idea. Um, few people, many people think may be rather beneficial. We'll see. Um, this is what we don't know. We know we don't know. Um, um, we, we are not clear what the effect of global climate change on population is going to be. It seems to me almost certainly to be negative. We're also not quite clear uh, what uh, the effect of, of, of population on global climate change is going to be. There's an interaction involved there. Almost all the projections of global climate change uh, show uh, um, the likelihood of diminution in most parts of the world in, in natural productivity of agriculture. Uh, not in, in Alaska, not in Siberia, where real estate will start to have some value at last, uh, but generally speaking, the rest of the world is bad news. The second great question, which I can't answer, um, is in a population like this, highly educated, sophisticated, knowledgeable, I presume, about family planning, why does anyone ever bother to have any children, given the trouble and expense? 20 years of partial house arrest, uh, direct cost of 100,000, opportunity cost if you give up work of, of getting on for half a million, it seems to be complete madness. And indeed, um, an increasing number of women are deciding that it is. Uh, the projection of lifetime childlessness in, in Britain is about 20% of all women. Uh, in Germany, about 30%. Now, this, by the way, does have some historical parallels. Uh, it, it was 20%, roughly speaking, in the 16th, 17th, 18th, and 19th century as well, for other different reasons. Uh, nowadays, more to do with choice, less to do with uh, unavailability of a husband. 
And the second big unknown uh, is what George was talking to us about a moment ago. What are the limits of the lifespan? If any, tremendous arguments going on uh, about whether there are or are not foreseeable limits to the lifespan. Some of them becoming some of the most uh, spiteful disputes in, in academic life that I, that I know about. Not, of course, involving uh, George. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> This is the, 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 the thing which helps us, which, which economists haven't got, is demographic momentum. The, the future of populations are, to a large extent, due to the, 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 the future um, uh, um, numbers in the population who are potential mothers and who are potential uh, workers and potential pensioners. Um, all potential pensioners for the next 65 years have already been born, apart from immigrants. All potential workers for at least the next 20 years have already been born. Almost all potential mothers for the next 20 years have already been born. Uh, this gives a stability to population projections, which is denied economic forecasts. And you can see on the left, Uganda in 1991, a population pyramid showing the distribution of, of the uh, population by percent, uh, males on the left, females uh, on the right. Um, and um, obviously a very bottom-heavy population, very high fertility, six babies per woman, uh, quite a high death rate, very, very rapid population growth. This is Uganda in 1991. Much the same now, except much bigger uh, all round. Um, if the ladies in Uganda decided not to have six children each, uh, but two children each from now on forever, the population of Uganda would still double. Um, likewise, if you look at Italy, um, because so many of the mothers have already been born, nothing you can do about it, you see. Uh, in Italy, uh, where the population pyramid is even more precarious now than it was in 1998, if the ladies of Italy decided to have two children per woman, the Italian ladies of Italy decided to have two children each uh, from tonight onwards, instead of the current sort of 1.3, 1.4, then the population of Italians in Italy would still decline for a generation or so uh, before it stabilized at some new uh, lower level. So this momentum does give us some, um, some, uh, some bottom, some certainty in our projections, which is denied uh, other kinds of forecasting. This is what the UN think is going to happen. Uh, the uh, blue line here is their medium variant. Uh, uh, all all demographers then hedge their bets by having a high variant uh, in red and a low variant in green. And note that the low variant UN population projection issued earlier on this year um, anticipates a decline in world population starting about uh, 2050 or so. I think rather optimistic, but th they think that is on the cards as a possibility. Uh, the, the top line, uh, the black one, is what happens if things continue as they are. If there's no further moderation of birth rates, it goes uh, through the roof and you do get to the 24 billion uh, which Sarah was talking about, which I, now I think is um, out of the question. Other ways of looking at population forecasts take into account the fact that we do get it wrong, and as time goes on, the forecast becomes more and more uncertain. And this is, this is uh, the process of uh, probabilistic projection, which you can only do if you've got lots and lots of computer number crunching time available. But, but uh, to cut a long story short, um, it, it increases the uncertainty in this fan chart you can see in front of you. Uh, and my colleague Wolfgang Lutz, whom uh, uh, um, Sarah mentioned earlier on, and his colleagues reckon that uh, this, this way of looking at it uh, indicates that there is, there is an odds-on uh, um, likelihood that the world population will start declining around about 2070. That, that of course, would be a, a mixture of populations, some still growing rather fast, as in tropical Africa, others continuing to decline, Germany, Japan, uh, Russia, Ukraine, uh, and others. Uh, I'll ignore that one for the time being. Um, <laughs> 
The mixture of, of likely futures is indicated by this graph, also from the UN in its latest projection, um, showing which populations are growing fastest. You see the, the fat blue line is sub-Saharan Africa powering away. Um, demographic transition not really started in many parts. Family size in Niger, about seven. Family size in Uganda, about six. Uh, um, some decline in southern Africa. Uh, but so much momentum, such high fertility, such slow rates of fertility decline uh, that very large amounts of growth, are, uh, barring, barring catastrophe, uh, are, are very likely taking the population to very high levels indeed. China, uh, the, 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 uh, um, the, the red line, um, almost certain to decline in about 20 years' time. India, the, the, the pale blue line, likely to follow it by about 2070. I know this is an awful long way in the future. Uh, 60 years is a long time in demography. Uh, nonetheless, that, that is what uh, appears to be on the cards at the moment. Elsewhere, uh, Pakistan growing reasonably fast. Um, Brazil ceasing to, to, to grow and, and declining. Uh, the USA uh, growing up. You can see the USA is the only big player from the developed world likely to be in the world's top 10 uh, by mid-century and, and later on. US has already passed the 300 million mark. It's uh, on target for 400 million. Uh, this suggests that it'll be on target for its first, possibly not its last, uh, half billion by end of the century. Again, a very speculative projection at that long range. Uh, Japan also declining, um, scarcely visible in, in the grey line right at the bottom. Um, here are some of these uh, exciting prospects as estimated by the UN uh, up till mid-century. Um, you see on the left-hand block uh, a number of populations um, comparing their, their, their size in 2005 with the expected size in 2050. And to cut a long story short, um, uh, the, the sum of all those is increasing or projected to increase by about threefold. If that is not to come to pass, then we've got to ask ourselves what is going to change to stop it coming to pass. Uh, will the birth rate decline even faster than the UN expects it to? Will the death rate uh, not uh, go on falling, but will, will it get radically worse? Obviously, you hope not. Can immigration make a difference? Um, at that level of magnitude, possibly uh, migration is not going to make very much of a difference, even if by the receiving country standards it becomes uh, very large uh, indeed. And some of the most exciting there ones are, of course, Yemen, which I mentioned, Uganda, which I mentioned, um, Ethiopia and Congo becoming really big players on the world stage from previous demographic obscurity. Um, this is uh, one, one possibility of an extreme trajectory going upwards. This is Niger, uh, the country with the highest birth rate in the world at the moment, where uh, the family size is about seven, and where the ladies of Niger say they want to have about seven children. So not much hope yet of a rapid demographic transition in Niger. This is one of those probabilistic projections saying possible different trajectories of, li of, of different levels of likelihood. Contrast that with Japan. This is the most po pessimistic population projection that I could find. Um, uh, far too pessimistic, I think unrealistically so. The Japanese official projection assumes that the birth rate will remain at 1.26 uh, children per woman um, from now on uh, to infinity. Except there isn't going to be an infinity for Japan. Because... <laughs> Because as you see in the fat black line, this is from an official publication, um, uh, we, go, we actually reached the last Japanese in about 2,410. <laughs> Mathematically, of course, you will, it will go on decreasing and then it will quite reach zero. As you aren't allowed to have a fractional Japanese, that is the end of the line for Japan. <laughs> Incidentally, um, the, the, the green and the yellow and the brown and the red are the blocks of the population uh, in, in various age groups, 0 to 14, 15 to 64, 65 and over, and so on. Note that while um, the population goes on going down with this sub-replacement fertility, the age structure stabilizes. 
A structures stabilize uh, and fit themselves around what the, the, the current birth and death rates happen to be. They don't go on. Aging does not go on getting worse and worse and worse with constant birth rates. Uh, population decline does. I don't believe that uh, at all. Nonetheless, uh, the Japanese have worried themselves in a position of, of quite excessive uh, pessimism about, about these things. Likewise, the Koreans, uh, the, the, um, uh, the Taiwanese, and many of the others that Sarah mentioned in her talk. Um, the, the shape of population also matters, of course. This, this is how, how uh, Japan is meant to be aging. I apologize for the garish colors. I didn't choose them, and I can't change them. Um, the, the one on the right is 2050, and, and you can see the point about aging, which Sarah was talking about, and the serious problems which uh, Japan uh, m may well have, even with adjustments of retirement age and all the rest. Um, one of the points I mentioned right at the beginning was that uh, one reason for being interested in population change is that it shifts the balance of, of numbers between different blocks of people. The demographic transition that which Sarah was talking about has happened at very different times and different speeds in different parts of the world. Um, this means that while uh, some uh, populations are stabilizing and starting to decline, others are increasing rapidly. And you can see here um, sub-Saharan Africa in blue powering ahead to very uh, large numbers by, by mid-century compared with uh, the stabilization of, of, uh, of China, the uh, stabilization of Brazil, uh, and the relative stagnation of, of Europe. And um, um, we can... We can see that this is also an interesting comparison with the US. There's much talk in The Economist, which Sarah used to, uh, to begin her talk with, uh, of the US overpowering, uh, overtaking rather, Europe in terms of numbers, uh, quite correct. Um, uh, Europe does go on increasing in numbers by adding more countries, of course. These countries, un <laughs> These countries unfortunately, tend to be, um, I probably, I'm not used to use the word basket case, but, but nonetheless, uh, <laughs> Countries of, 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 of poor economies and uncertain politics with rock-bottom birth rates. So they're, they're, they're deadly useless uh, as additions in, in demographic terms if you're interested in expansion. So um, no matter how many extra countries, except for Turkey, the EU, EU adds, uh, try Ukraine with its declining population, it'll go on declining. Whereas, of course, the, the, the US adds people, not countries. Um, first of all, from its own high birth rate, also by hoovering up uh, large sections of Latin America. And you can see the US in green uh, doing very well indeed in terms of numbers, if you want to grow. Um, I submit briefly, when talking about Europe, that there's no such thing as Europe in demographic terms. Um, and you can see that, that the, uh, the, the, the big element in, uh, quote, Europe's declining population, which the papers are always whining on about, is actually Eastern Europe, where birth rates are rock bottom uh, and have been ever since the collapse of communism. Compare that with, with uh, Western Europe uh, declining slowly <laughs> in, in projection, Southern Europe also declining slowly, and Northern Europe actually continues to increase quite fast. Uh, in, in a way which I find troublesome. So very diverse things going on in Europe, uh, which you can see by this, this comparison of uh, Italy, France, Spain, and, and the UK. And you can see in this projection um, from, this is from, uh, also from the UN, um, uh, Britain and almost France overtaking Germany in numbers by, by mid-century. I think this is likely to happen. Mr. Cameron is clearly keen that it should not happen. Um, uh, the French might not be uh, quite so displeased because if they could overturn the uh, historical dominance of Germany, uh, their neighbor, by overtaking it in numbers, uh, they might be rather quietly satisfied. This is the UK. This is the latest official United Kingdom population projection. The blue line is the, uh, the principal uh, uh, central projection. Uh, the red line on top and the green line below are the, the bet hedging uh, higher and lower projections. The natural change one, the, the orange one, is what happens if there's no migration in or out. 
population stabilizing by 2036 or so, and then going back to about today's level by about 2050. Uh, thanks to demographic momentum, uh, as I illustrated earlier on. So very impressive new population growth, primarily due to migration, as this contrast of those, those show. Important to realize though, that migration can go down as well as up. Uh, this is this um, spaghetti mess is, is, is Germany from uh, 1954 to 2007, um, and you can see that the, uh, the level of net migration is, is pretty much zero and has in one or two years actually been negative. Uh, as a combination of all sorts of factors, some to do with policy, some not to do with policy. So it's not inevitably upwards all the time. Likewise, to contrast with that, um, um, birth rates don't always go down. Birth rates in Northern Europe haven't been going down for the last 20 or 30 years. In, in Western Europe for um, the last uh, 10 or 15 years, and even, even in Southern and Eastern Europe, they're starting to go up. In fact, there are no countries uh, in Europe, I think except for Moldova, where the birth rate is not increasing at the present time partly through immigration, partly through uh, the end of postponement of, of childbearing and the recuperation of, of, of postponed births. Uh, but I haven't got time to go into that. But it's very important to realise that birth rates are going up. Ours is now the highest it's been since about 1972 or something of that kind. Um, I won't detain you on the matter of uh, migration because I'm very rapidly running out of time. Um, um, just to, yes, I, I won't dilate on that. It's a shame because it's rather amusing. But... Um, um, <laughs> Uh, here we are. Um, one of the consequences of migration, I just want to mention very briefly, and ignoring all the other interesting ones, is the way in which it changes the ethnic composition of populations if migration comes from um, um, substantially from countries of a different uh, culture or, or, or ethnic origin or language uh, from the receiving country. Here is the United States, which is the one in the lead. In the United States, the, the, the former um, uh, majority, the so-called uh, uh, white non-Hispanic population, the conventional Americans of westerns and gangster films and, uh, and so forth, um, is projected to become a minority in the United States by 2043, according to the U.S. Bureau of the Census. And you can see that from the crossover of those two lines there. Something a bit similar um, is, is beginning to happen in Europe and has been happening for some time. These are all the official projections that I could assemble, um, or mostly official, a, a few made by academics, uh, of uh, the, the, the increase in the foreign origin population, which I'll define later if anyone's in interested, um, from 2000 to 2050. As you see, increasing up from a minimum of about 20%, sorry, 12% by mid-century up to about 35% uh, or so, and continuing upwards in due course. One consequence of that is, of course, the people of different sorts and colours and races and, and languages fall in love and have sex. Um, one of the consequences of that is these three lovely people here. Um, you may recognise the chap on the left. Uh, the bottom one, of course, is our own Mr Hamilton, the, motor, the, the racing driver. And the lady on the right uh, is um, a former Miss France who was uh, uh, deposed for some disgraceful act. Um, and uh, one can only hope that she might claim asylum in England. Uh, I'm sure we'd all welcome <laughs> Well, to conclude, uh, this very scrappy collection of crumbs, um, just to reinforce the point which I think Sarah also made, that population ageing is inevitable. So also is a relative decline of the, of, of the form of first world as it's numerically uh, outpaced by, by uh, other, other, other uh, populations growing faster. Um, Northwest Europe nonetheless continues to grow, mainly because of immigration, but also because the birth rate is much more robust than in Central, Eastern and Southern Europe. 
Um, in the long run, of course, um, as uh, wealth, as, as techniques uh, e equalize, we can expect to go back to the position in about 1600, 1500, whereby population size uh, was the most important determinant of economic, military, and political power, um, as it was in those days, so it will be in the future. Um, I've mentioned fastest growth, I've mentioned uh, climate change, um, uh, I've mentioned migration pressure, and in the long run, there's still this vast uncertainty. We don't know what the end point of the demographic transition is going to be. We don't know if we've got there or not. Um, if there's going to be an equilibrium position, some kind of stable birth rate that developed countries will, will all converge to, we don't yet know what it is. It's wobbling around all over the place at the moment, as you can see, and the same thing, as George so eloquently pointed out, is true of death rates. And there I will stop. Thank you very much.